Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 52, Teaching the Full Stack with Allie Spittle. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name is Kelly Schuster-Perez, and I'm a teacher who codes. Welcome, Allie. It's great to have you. Thanks. We've been uh, trying to coordinate this, I think, for a couple weeks. Honestly, I've been secretly wanting to have you on the show for probably a year and a half, ever since I heard that you were a, a teacher of Python, not just a, so many of the other things that you do, like a co-host of the Ladybug podcast, you're a senior developer advocate at AWS, your blog is widely read and amazing, and talks about a lot of the challenges that you've faced and overcome in the tech industry. And so it's been a longtime goal of mine to have you on the show and hear about how you teach and what you think about while you're teaching and advocating for developers. Thank you so much. I'm really excited about this conversation. Sean was telling me about it. I started reading about you, and I was like, wow, pretty cool. <laughs> so it was very <laughs> exciting to finally meet you. This week, we're going to be talking about teaching the full stack. And, and Al, you've got a lot of experience in a, a number of different ways looking at full stack as a developer, as a teacher. And what we'd like to do this week is talk about how we can help our students learn the full stack. But before we get into that, we'd like to start in the same place we do every week, which is the win of the week. Something good that's happened to us inside or outside of the classroom. And Allie, because you're our guest, we're going to make you go first. Oh, awesome. So I went through a really hard place with creating content for a while, where just putting things out there was really difficult and I was overwhelmed with my day job, but I've been able to build it back up to be consistent recently. And so that for me has been a big win and I've been playing with different content formats too, of Twitch and YouTube. And so that's been fun too. That's my big win right now. That's really cool. I saw your posts recently about the Amplify product over at AWS. And so I've been wanting to get into that because it looks like it's really interesting, cool stuff to play with. That's awesome. I work full-time on Amplify. It's really fun. I know how hard that can be to get back into content creation mode. I think Kelly said to me earlier this week, we've been making a blog post push this week to, to actually get some content posted to our blog. And she said, why don't you write about this project? It'll be really easy. And six hours later, I'm like, okay, I think I've got the wiring diagram done. <laughs> it's really hard to get good content out. It's so much work. So much goes into it. Yeah, it's been crazy. But I read on your one blog post about Grammarly Pro, and I was like, yeah, score. <laughs> and they went beta on the on Google Drive. So it's been really cool exploring that as a tool for both teachers and for bloggers. So it's been really cool. It's so nice. I need it. <laughs> I misspell everything or have like weird grammar things. My big thing with blog posts is that I always trail off like mid-sentence and then forget to come back and like, fill in that sentence. So I have a bunch of blog posts with just like half of a sentence somewhere in there. So, well, where mine's six sentences in a one-sentence paragraph, so <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> I have a feeling Grammarly is like that thing where you, you're like, I'm a pretty good writer. I, I know how to complete sentences. I've got good structure and everything. And, and then Grammarly is like, uh, actually, I've got some thoughts. I'm hoping that it's definitely going to keep improving on this kind of AI. I'm assuming an AI learning path with my uh, writing style. So maybe we can hit them up for sponsors. <laughs> yeah, I think they sponsor some podcasts at least. Oh, so There you go, Sean. Yeah. All right, I'll get working on that. <laughs> All right, Kelly, it's your turn. Win of the week. Uh, so I had to, but I'm not going to talk about my blog that I did post. I want to make my one of the week for the demonstration of learning projects with my sixth graders. I was overwhelmed with 
the amount of code that these sixth graders wrote after nine weeks of learning and using the PyBytes uh, newbie bytes, I couldn't believe it. I had kids that were using Turtle beyond the means of, I think, some of our former eighth graders. I had kids making Mad Libs with list and list methods and um, turning them into functions so that they can change the story title or the type of adjectives in there. And then I had a student make an app about a study guide. She had history, English, math, foreign language, and she was using a loop with inputs and, and lists to append that. And just seeing sixth graders develop the basic concepts I, I was overwhelmed. I couldn't believe. I, I think I need to total up the amount of lines that one class had. I had each student about 260 lines of code. I, I, I couldn't even imagine writing that many lines of code after coding for nine weeks. So I was just happy, <laughs> very happy. <laughs> it's a good year, a good quarter. Yeah, one of your students kept interrupting me. I was sitting there working in my back corner of the room trying to get some stuff done, and she kept interrupting me because she's, look, I made this snow globe with a CircuitPython uh, board, and it'll light up. And, and then she's, and then tell me about this home assistant thing, because I really want to automate the lights in my room. And can I use an LED strip for that? I'm like, Okay, I think Kelly's doing something right here. This is really working well. I ponder off on you. I know she's going to be your little prodigy with uh, hardware stuff. So I'm, you can I'm have her. She's going to be amazing. Done. I'm happy to. So for me, along the same lines, I had my eighth grade uh, projects this week that were coming together. And I really went as hands off as I could with the students. Figured out. I'm here to help you if you really get stuck, but I want you to work through the problems and try to research it and apply all the skills that you've learned over the last three years. And this is a bit melancholic for me because the the students that I have in eighth grade were the ones that I started teaching with as sixth graders two years ago. And so they're coming through now and finishing up some of these final projects and culminating a lot of the knowledge that they've acquired. And so I've seen all kinds of cool things this week, like one of my students tied into the Home Assistant server and made it play YouTube videos when the door opened and closed. Another student who I hadn't even really been like too much in, t in contact with because they were distance learning and quiet and shy and everything came back and was like, I made a fractal tree generator with Python turtle. So it's just like sitting there drawing this tree and it's got all the branches and everything. And, and he's just like letting it run and it's doing different colors. It had this synth wave vibe to it. It was just really fun to see these students come together and, and put together a project that they really got excited about and into and the depth of the dive into the topic was really impressive to see. And the variety. I thought the variety was I really so like it. awesome. <laughs> You're making me miss have actual students. You can always come in and guest uh, teach. We, we have both <laughs> online and physical students. So if you ever want to virtual teach, we're all welcome for guest speakers. <laughs> oh, that would be so fun. We'll, we'll definitely have to make something happen. We get a new group of students every nine weeks. So in about six weeks, I think they'll be ready for you. So okay. we can schedule it. That'd be so much fun. I would love that. So isn't the next uh, area we go into is the fail of the week, just something that didn't work as planned and what you did to fix it or what the fix in progress looks like. Kelly, would you like to go first for this one? Sure. I, like every good teacher, we constantly go through our content and think about how we can improve and seeing how this is probably the, what, 26th iteration of our content. I, it's amazing to me that I, I still see places where I fail we were talking about our choice boards and I think I was just slamming the kids the first quarter. So I, 
I think it was too much over a long period of time. So one of my epic fails was bringing down the nine choice boards over a two-week span, and we're going to push them down to four boxes over a two-day span to have smaller chunks of learning happen, but quicker assessment. So I thought it was a kind of a fail because the kids were just overwhelmed with the length and the, the depth of what we were expecting from them. They did it, but it was very stressful for some. <laughs> so, Yeah, I think that definitely happened at all different grade levels. We saw that the students really, I don't know, maybe it was too much at once, and so we're going to chunk it into smaller pieces because I think they really got behind in some cases and, and didn't know how to get themselves out of that position. Yeah, so, Sean, you're going to do or you're going to make Allie go? Well, well, <laughs> let her I, choose. <laughs> I'll let you choose, Allie. Oh, I can go. All right, go for it. Oh my goodness. Mine recently has been video editing. Like I just can't figure it out. It's so, so difficult. And so I completely butchered one of my YouTube videos and made the audio into mono accidentally. And so I'm trying to figure it out and trying to, trying to learn and get better at that. So it's just a new skill. Isn't that the hardest part about learning something like that? Is it just that the feeling that you're constantly failing until it's like it clicks and okay, now I get it. That's so real. (laughs) And I think that's the hardest thing to teach our students too, is that if it feels hard and that you're struggling and that you're failing, it means you're probably doing something worthwhile. You're learning something real. So good. I'm I'm glad that you're, you're making that progress. It'll be really cool to have more and more skills in that space because that's something that I've always wanted to do and I haven't been able to really wrap my head around it to be able to get better video editing. And I've got a brother who went to film school. Like he knows how to do all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm totally don't get it. Oh my goodness. It's so tricky. Well, there's, there is definitely a lot to learn and it makes it really amazing when you see someone who knows it really well and they can make it look effortless because I have no idea how they do that. (laughs) Remind me, Ali, to, and we'll put it in our show notes if I can find them. There is a guy that I follow, I think his name is Erdogan on Twitter, and he teaches movie editing and just has, it's probably not what you want, but some of the cool effects that he does with things, maybe later on if you want to get tricky with your YouTube videos, well, you can follow him. He's a, some, a teacher somewhere. So I'll try to remember where his Twitter feed is. Oh, wow. Definitely need to check that out. <laughs> okay. That'd be cool. So, so my fail this week is actually nothing to do with teaching. As part of my one of my side gigs, I still do some consulting work for clients around technical marketing automation and things like that. And so I had supporting this client that it basically is running pretty well, but occasionally they have support issues come through. And, and yesterday I found an email from them that was two weeks old that hadn't been flagged as important by Google. And I was like, hey, this thing's not working. Can you take a look at it? And I'm like, oh, no, it's been two weeks. And this has been wrong for two weeks. So I had to make a quick call and say, I'm so sorry. I found this. I'm working on it. I will get back to you. But just that communications fail of I didn't see the important flag on it. And so I missed the email for a long period of time, just kicking myself for that one. But (laughs) they were understanding and I'm fixing it and it's going to be fine. But it was just one of those everything turned to slow motion and I went, oh no. (laughs) Thank goodness for the three-day weekend. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) All right. (laughs) All right. So let's let's dive right into our main topic. But first, Allie, for those of you who don't know you or who haven't seen you online, maybe just a, a brief overview of what you do, how you teach. You have a a proliferation of things that you do. When I was going over your bio, there's a lot. If you would just highlight a few things that people may know you from or where to find you, we can get started with our topic. Yeah, so I 
actually started off the first time that I taught code was also in middle school. So I was an education minor in college. My school didn't have an education major. So I did my shadow semester and was in a math classroom for seventh graders and was able to teach them some basic code things. But then from there went into being a software engineer for a couple of years and then transitioned back to teaching full time at a coding boot camp. And I was there for about three years. And by the end, I was the faculty lead for the program in New York City. So I got to do a lot of like selecting of curriculum and guidance there. But it was really an awesome program because it taught mid-career people how to code and to do so in a career capacity. So going from, for some people, hello world to professional developer in 12 weeks. And that was different for everybody in the program, but a really awesome thing to see. So definitely a different setting than teaching kids, but also a really interesting one and really, really cool to see as well. And then most recently, I've been transitioning into developer advocacy. That's a hard word to pronounce. <laughs> it's early in the morning. So that allows me to teach in a different way. So I don't necessarily have students anymore, but I am teaching my community how to use our products best and then bringing feedback that they have on the products back into the internal team. And so I think it's really cool because it's a different way to teach. So it's mostly asynchronous content, but I still do get to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with people and make an impact on products as a result. So that's a little bit about what I do now and my history with teaching and also that I get to do so through my blog and podcasts and all that too. So it's a little bit asynchronous now, but I definitely miss having full-time students. Well, we'll let you borrow ours anytime you want. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. So one of the things that we talked about before the show and as we were leading up to this was the role that you've had as a developer and as an advocate and as a teacher involves more than just Python. So Kelly and I teach Python and occasionally we dabble in a few other things with our students depending on what they want to do. But we really focus because we have nine weeks on just getting some basic computer science concepts together, teaching some more durable skills like persistence, perseverance, you know, problem solving, things like that. But we don't really go beyond Python in our course. Uh, we don't really have time to, and it hasn't really been our focus. But a lot of the work that you've done is across what's called the full stack. So we wanted to talk about that for teachers and how teachers could start potentially using that with their students or how they could acquire the skills that they need for it. So maybe we should start with what is the full stack? And, and I'm assuming we're not talking about pancakes. I know that's the obvious <laughs> joke, but it is early in the morning and I guess I'm a little bit hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think what the full stack is means something different slightly to different audiences and different people. But for us, it meant being able to build the front end. So what the user interacts with and the website or whatever that shows up in the browser that people click on and type into and all that and then also be able to work on the data layer so the business logic that goes into conditionally displaying data or saving that data so that the next user can use it as well 
And then the last piece is the deployment process. So making it so that you can actually get that code on a server and the entire web can use it instead of just people on one machine. So you'll have to, I'm going to go through this whole lens as a newbie. So, yes. and so I'm going to always go back. So my knowledge of, and this is where it's so, it still baffles me, still baffles me. So back in, I don't know, 2005, I had to do Dreamweaver, Adobe Dreamweaver, and I had to teach the kids how to build their own portfolio with um, HTML. And I, we made our little websites and we packaged them up and then I would just would send to somebody. So that whole idea, that concept of combining Python, putting it out there in the internet, it's still, poof, it happens. I'm like, oh, it's magic. And I always tell the kids, well, some magic, some really smart people made this code that helps it do this. So... Can you work through, I mean, it sounds silly, but what is the basic in the layers of the full stack, some of the basic programs or languages that happen in each stack? Break it down for me a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So you said HTML and CSS, and I would say that's the very top layer of the application. The absolutely necessary piece of any website is going to be HTML and CSS. HTML being the content and CSS being the styling, so how the website looks. And then on top of that, you could add a little bit of JavaScript to make it interactive so that when somebody clicks on a button, something happens or there's a fun effect or something along those lines on the page. But even a higher abstraction from that now is that instead of using HTML to build websites, you can actually just use JavaScript from scratch. And so you may hear of JavaScript frameworks like React or Vue, and those essentially do that. They allow you to write your user interface all in one, the interactivity and the content all in one place instead of breaking it down into that HTML, um, CSS, JavaScript construct. So we teach all of that for the front end, or we taught, I guess I no longer do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the front end. That's the f first piece of the full stack. And then the back end, there's a lot of different options here. So you can use JavaScript and a lot of people use Node, Node.js, and that allows you to just work in the same language throughout your whole entire application, which is nice, so you don't need to context switch. But what I've done a lot in my career is use Python for that backend instead, so that data interaction layer of selecting what data is sent to the front end and also what data is stored and persisted for the next person to use the site. So. With Python, there are two main web frameworks that you may use, um, Flask and Django. Flask is really lightweight, so you can write a couple of functions and from there get a kind of backend from that. And it will allow you to host different HTML files as well so that you can have multiple web pages instead of just one. And then Django is a little bit more in depth. so. It has a lot more built into it, but with that, it also becomes a lot more complex. So if you're building a really large web app or something along those lines, Django would be amazing for that. And then the last piece of this is the database. So where is the data actually stored? My favorite one is Postgres, but there's also like MongoDB or MySQL or any number of other ones. And then the last piece of this is actually getting it online so that anybody can use it because until then it's just a file on your computer or a script that you can run. And so 
there are different deployment services. Potentially the easiest one to get started on is like something like Heroku, which does a lot for you. And then as you want to get closer and closer to servers, there's tools like AWS, which you have to do a little bit more configuration for depending on the product or service that you use. And then there's even just like having your own server computer box in your um, office and using that to host your site. So there's different layers of deployment. And then there are also more modern solutions as well, like serverless, which you wouldn't need to use something like Flask or Django at all. You just write a Python function and then deploy that and be able to use that kind of as your light backend. I, I visualize a, what do we call them in our classrooms <laughs> that we, we like a poster of all this information. Okay. I need to draw okay. this out, an anchor, <laughs> anchor chart. chart yeah. The yeah. whole time you're talking, I'm like, oh, that was what Michael Kennedy, I know all the, I know every single one of those applications and, and words that you were using all from the podcast of listening to Michael Kennedy. Thank you. That was really well done. Awesome. <laughs> No, that's the hardest part with podcasting is that there aren't visuals. And so I wish I'm just like, oh, I wish I had a picture for this. But, uh, <laughs> it, it, it happens in my mind. So I mean, we should figure out like a live whiteboard or something that we could have during this and just like whiteboard talk through it. Well, I don't have my piece of paper that I normally sketch out, so I'll have to go back and re-listen to our podcast and sketch it out, and we'll put it up on the show notes. I promise I got a to-do list on there. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, the thing that it strikes me about this is that there is possibly so much to learn to be able to pull this all together, right? Like that there's a lot of complexity and there's a lot of different areas of knowledge that you need to have. Is this something where you have to have all of that in your own head or does this mean you're doing it all yourself? Are there ways to make this better? Is it, you know, are there technology solutions? Are there people solutions? Are you often working in a team? Like how in practice has this worked? Do you have to have it all in your head or how do you solve for that? Yeah, I think there's a couple different answers there. So first is when you're working as a professional software engineer. And so that's going to depend on your team. Sometimes you're going to have to be full stack, especially for me working at startups for a lot of my careers, I have to wear a lot of hats and be the person writing all the code. But in a lot of larger development teams, you could just write the front end or just write the HTML and CSS or just write a piece of the JavaScript or just write part of the back end. So that's professionally. And as far as teaching goes, for the most part, I was teaching the full stack myself. And so this was the development stack that I had been using professionally. And so I'm pretty comfortable with it. But I learned so much from teaching it the first couple times of all the misconceptions that I had built up and all the gaps that I had in my knowledge. I was mostly a self-taught software developer. I didn't go through a boot camp or have a full CS degree or anything like that. I had mostly put all these pieces together by myself. And so teaching it, I had to learn so, so, so much. And then I think from the learning perspective, there's so many different paths that you can take as well. I, I was talking more as an adult learner, like there's computer science degrees, there's boot camps, and then there's self-teaching. And Normally, boot camps are going to be full stack, at least most of them are. And the reason for that is that you can build full applications with the full stack, and that's really great to have on your portfolio. That being said, professionally, most of the graduates go on to be front end developers because that's where we spend a little bit more time and 
it seems like companies are like more willing to hire boot camp grads into front-end development positions, which is the whole rabbit hole in and of itself. But then when you're self-teaching, I don't necessarily think that you need to teach yourself full stack, but I do think that it's good context to have of knowing a little bit of front-end and a little bit of back-end so that you can at least talk to those other developers when you have your job. Was that Did that answer your question at all? Yeah. I've seen, at least in my experience, like you might start with a project in mind, oh, I want to make this thing, and I know this area really well, and so I have to grow my knowledge. It expands out like almost a mold or something, right? Yeah. Like it just grows outward, and suddenly you're like, okay, now I, I actually know more than I thought about this area. And so for teachers, I think we find that a student will come to us and say, I want to do this project, and I end up designing a little learning plan for them and saying, okay, well, you know these things already. You need to go research this. You need to go learn about this, and that will give you enough knowledge to be able to pull this together. And so we're just trying to teach them that ability to learn just enough information to be able to accomplish their goals and find the next steps for, okay, if you wanted to make it better, here's what else you would need to go learn. Yeah, and I'm like thinking, sorry, as you guys were both talking, I'm thinking back to design technology because I taught design technology for about 10 years and I kept thinking form function. Like, where do you start? Is it when you're presented with, say, a a project, sometimes you kind of cycle back through of what it looks in the front end, what it's doing uh, for the user, or how do you know where to start or do you just go dabble and push together? (laughs) No, I think it depends on... The assignment, I think more than anything, like most of the time, if you're doing something professional, you're going to be working on a big team. And so you don't have to do every single piece of the puzzle. You're assigned little pieces of the puzzle. And so you're building one feature. And from there, you can decide whether to do the functionality first or the display first and then make it functional. So usually you're given bite-sized pieces, but when you are working on individual projects, it does become a lot more overwhelming. And with that, I think having a plan and feature prioritization of this is what is most important. I need to get these things done, but these other three things would be amazing to have. It's just those are my bonuses if I get to them. That's something that we would have to teach a lot at the boot camp because our students had projects that they had to work on and how to prioritize features and how to make paths for themselves and how to decide between different things to build and plan for that. So we had them make like bronze, silver, gold, and platinum levels to all their features. And so the bronze ones were things that they absolutely needed. The silver ones were things that would be pretty necessary to have, but if they didn't have them, they would like still pass the project. And then gold and platinum ones would be the really shiny, amazing ones that would be great to have on there, but they probably wouldn't have time for. I keep thinking Scrum the whole way through. Here's this path work. Here's this framework. And one of our my, our friends has really taken on Scrum and, and I keep she keeps trying to get me to go down that path. And that would be a really cool course for us to teach is just how to do that full stack, even just to lay out the framework needed to build a project. It's very fun. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, cool. and I think I think for middle school students, they could absolutely handle something that is smaller to start with, right? So start with something that's maybe just a two or three key features would be an amazing project for them, especially over the course of a few weeks. And then, but teaching them that process of implementing something, adding to it, 
following this roadmap or path that they've created for themselves. And then maybe as you are teaching high school students or college level or something like that, that really you're just looking at the pace of that and the depth or the breadth of what they can accomplish, right? So instead of two or three things, maybe a high school student might do five or six and a college student might do 10 to 12 and just keep growing the size of it as the student's capabilities increase. I was going back and thinking about a project and stuff. I think Sean's got a lot of uh, different expertise and I keep my expertise segmented. For example, I did the HTML and then I worked a lot in uh, FileMaker. I got rid of all of that information. I put it aside when I was learning Python because I was like, I can't handle. (laughs) But I was just thinking about as we start a project, say you're starting with someone or you're working with an adult learner or a, a student learner and they've come to you with either this great database of saying, listen, I want to build something out. I'm trying to think about how I want to formulate this question, but what are those skills when someone comes to you and says, hey, I have this database and I want to get it out there? Like, where do you go? How do you help develop that as a full-stack developer? I mean... Oh, that's a good question. (laughs) I think you can use something like Flask or Jingo on top of an existing database, but in, in a lot of cases, it would be the opposite direction where you would build the app and then the database would come. But I think, again, it's like the teaching them how to plan and then giving them the resources to teach. I think one of the biggest philosophies that I had is that, yes, I do teach them specific technologies. Yes, I do have traditional lectures and lab periods and hands-on learning time. But the biggest thing that I could teach them was how to teach themselves because that's what they would be doing on the job. And that's what so much of development is um, using different technologies than you were initially taught or initially started with. But for me, Python was like the first code that I ever learned in a computer science classroom. And so I definitely still have a huge soft spot for it because of that. So you learned HTML after Python or did you? Yeah, years later. Wow, very cool. Yeah. And how did that happen? So did you have a project that you were wanting to do and I'm like, and then said, okay, now I need to learn this to be able to do it? Or you took, thought it was interesting and so you did some tutorials or training or something like that and then built a project? Like, What was your pathway to learning those new um, skills? Yeah, so my story is super funny and untraditional. So I grew up in like rural New Hampshire, and my high school didn't even have a, a computer lab, let alone computer science classes or anything like that. So I hear about it being mandatory for a lot of students now, and I'm like, that's so amazing. I'm so jealous. I wish that I had that. But I did not know what code was until I was in a computer science classroom during my sophomore year of college. I had an extra credit hour, and this one computer science class fit into my schedule. And so I was like, okay, cool. I don't know what this is. I thought that I was going to learn how to format Microsoft Word documents. I thought that's what like computer science was. And I jumped into this computer science classroom and was thrown Python. They had typed out pieces of paper with Python code on it, and our job was to type it back into the computer and run it. And I was like, what is this? This is the wildest thing I've ever done. (laughs) No idea what's going on. This is not what I expected. But that semester was amazing. I built all these like games with Python. That's what the whole class was. So we built like tic-tac-toe. I recreated Flappy Bird because that was really big that year. 
and some other fun apps. And then from there, I was like, this could be something that I do long term. And they ended up asking me to do like TA work for the department as well. So I started doing that. But then um, I took a C++ class the next semester. And looking back, I, I think maybe it could have been taught in a lot more compassionate way, but it was a kind of weed out class and I got weeded out. I was pulling all nighters for it and just working really hard. And I think I was one of those really perfectionist students where I was like, I'm working so hard to get a B in this class. That means that I'm awful at this and like it really just isn't for me. And so after that, I quit coding. I thought I just wasn't good at it. It wasn't going to be what I did. And then I got a job that spring, so I was like a junior in college, I think, at this point, and it was doing a lot of data analysis work. I was taking a lot of stats classes, and I realized that I could use Python to automate my own job. You sound like what Sean does. <laughs> it, it's kind of my favorite thing to do is to automate my job away. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I did that and they were like, oh, wow, this is cool. You should look at, into this and maybe do this. And so then they recommended me for a software engineering program and became my career. And I ended up like leaving college to be a software engineer. <laughs> That's pretty cool. But from there, it was mostly like, okay, I need to do this thing at work. Let me teach myself this thing so that I can implement it. That's pretty cool. I keep thinking we can give the kids the flappy bird code and they have to build out the full <laughs> front end at least. <laughs> There's yeah. already some, that would be really fun. I did it just in Python using Pygame. Yeah. So I actually had one of my students just showed me that example yesterday. She went through and followed that Flappy Bird game in Python and built it in Pygame. And it's still like really cool. It's a great project. <laughs> yeah, it's so much fun. <laughs> I have that little sensor that you plug in and you put your hand and I, maybe we can combine it with the Python Whoa. where you put your hand and it's just an ultra, ultrasonic sensor and the, we get closer, the bird goes up. I've seen that as a uh, as the website's already made, and you just plug in the center sensor and play. I wonder well, I if we can we, hack that. I'm sure we can. <laughs> so cool. I'm sure we yeah. can. Yeah. All right. Off tangent. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's so cool. Cool. Go, Sean. Oh, I was going to ask. This space in software engineering is something that we don't really talk too much about with our students. Like I talk to them about. Yes, I've written code. I've been in places where I am part of my job or a big chunk of my job is to make things happen with technology. But we don't necessarily talk about software engineering as a profession because it's so middle school. We want to want them to feel yeah. like it's something for them. And in fact, the goal that we tell all of our students is if you end up being a software engineer or a software developer, we would love that and we'd be thrilled. But if you end up being a doctor who also writes code, we would also be thrilled. That would be amazing, right? What are some of the skills, though, that are important or things that are non-technical that you've found to be really helpful or valuable as a software developer in your career? And, and are there ways that you can teach that to your students or help them understand it? Yeah. I, so I think there's so much that goes into this. The communication and being able to actually distill what feature is needed because a lot of times you'll have a bunch of conflicting priorities and a bunch of different opinions from different people and distilling that into something that will be the best of all of those scenarios. I think that's really important. But for me, actually, teaching has been so huge for my career and 
especially as you move up into being like a senior or a lead, a lot of your job is mentoring the new people on your team or juniors or getting them up to speed. And so teaching has been so, so helpful for my career. And even like writing documentation, that's teaching in a way as well. I'm trying to make this as understandable for a general population as possible. So those are two skills that have been really big, but problem solving is massive as well and being able to think through problems and break them into smaller and smaller problems and then combine them back together to build something so much of it is non-technical especially as you work your way up do you ever or have you ever in the past when you were teaching when you were in your teaching role did you ever look at someone and say oh my gosh this person's going to make it. I look at some of the students and not necessarily going to make it in coding, like Sean said, but we just see, I had this one ch- student this year, just for example, we've been t- trialing out PyBytes code newbies and I did not want them to push the solution, but I said, listen, if you've tried it for six or seven times and you say, well, can't do it, you could. I had this one student literally 172 times trying to submit and she emailed me and she would email me with the first header saying don't give me the answer but am I getting close and I I told Sean and get shivers and I told Julian and Bob from PyBytes I said this kid regardless if she does coding she's gonna make it because she is persistent in whatever she's doing in learning is there a time where you've looked or you've taught somebody that you're just like holy cow that person's got xyz skills and They're going to be awesome soon. Oh, yeah. So, so often. I think what my position was so interesting because I had a lot of people who had already made it. Like I had people who were in their late 50s, their 60s, who were going through this boot camp program and were like previously... CIOs or whatever, <laughs> looking to learn what they're, the people that they managed did. But so many people where you see the tenacity or the how much they care about things or the combination of skills that they have, and you're like, oh, wow, they're going to absolutely do amazing things. And I think that's one of the really magical things about teaching, too, is I can write so many lines of code in my career, but all of those people all together can write so much more code and make so much more of an impact on the industry than I ever could alone. Pretty cool. Yeah, one of the things that I keep thinking about and the responsibility as a teacher is that if I'm doing this right, I'm training my future coworkers and hopefully even my future bosses, students that are going to be so amazing at this and find something that they're really passionate about and good at that in 10 or 15 years, like they could be out there in the workforce doing amazing things. And that kind of effect that I can have to help them get there is a pretty cool thing. And I really want to get it right. I really want to be good at this so that they get the most out of it definitely so another question because i keep telling sean what's going to happen when python's not the big language what's what are we going to do when it's not it so any advice on where to go or what would be a cool thing to learn after the basics or whatever of python or the intermediate phase of python as a teacher or someone that may want to do more than, and I'm putting a just in there, but not saying it's just teaching, but just teaching. What if I wanted to go start something and learn to start teaching myself something? Where would I go? Oh, that's such a good question. There's so many different directions that 
could go in as well and I think it depends so much on your interest because there are so many subfields within programming whether there's like data science or data visualization or front-end development or back-end development or accessibility or DevOps there's so many worlds within this and so I think you got to find the thing that you're most passionate about and maybe it is finding a project that you want to build and would be really passionate about and would make your job easier or just be something that would contribute to one of your hobbies or something along those lines and learn the things that are needed to build that thing out. I don't know. That would be... Sound like Sean. I have my... Yeah, yeah, that's totally the answer. I I knew you were going to say because he knows my project. My project is definitely a full stack project, but, you know, I'm still stuck on Matplotlib kind of things. Oh, no, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I think that's, as an outsider to education, like coming in and being a teacher, one of the things that struck me as I looked around was there are so many opportunities to make projects and make things better and and try new things. And it really depends on what you're interested in. And Kelly, we're definitely going to make your project happen. I will help (laughs) you. I will help you in any way I can, because it's really cool. There's so many opportunities to leverage data in education. There's so many ways Mm -hmm. that we could improve operations, right? By applying a DevOps mindset to the way we deliver education and the systems behind it. It it seems like the sky's the limit, like in the education space for what you can do. And if you're at all interested in this as a teacher, you've got some some extra skills and knowledge that people who are approaching it as outsiders don't have like you've got that context and the subject matter of education that you could apply your new skills to and make something amazing for for people that didn't hear about the project in previous millions of episodes we've I've said this all the time so I used to work on a, a project with I told you the file maker guy and I was like the designer of the project and he collected data on all the students and all their grades and all their criteria of learning and my thought process is there's so much data like Sean was saying whether they have two homes where they live the distance from the school whether they play sports etc that it would be an awesome project just to smush all this data of all these kids to get a, a really great analytical picture of our students before we we push them up to the next grade or get them from the grade below just to get this nice picture of everything. And so that's my dream job, my dream project. But it, it seems so overwhelming. I know where I want to go with it, but yes, definitely full yeah. stack of everything. Oh, <laughs> so we might sure. be calling you up sometime. <laughs> oh yeah, I think Flask or Django would be a great fit for that and build upon skills. Cool. So Django Girls is one of my absolute favorite resources. Uh, They do the day-long workshops that take people from Hello World, never having coded before, to teaching them like the command line and HTML and CSS and the request response cycle and how the web works to actual Django itself. And you build this blog app throughout the day. It's really fun. But they also have the workshop online on just GitHub repository. And so you can look through that and it's a great resource that makes Django like so accessible. So I highly recommend that resource. And it would be great for teaching kids too. I've had, I've taught it a couple times in DC where I used to live and we've had like eighth graders come and learn it as well with, with the adults. All right. So that's my new year's resolution. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, that's a, that sounds awesome. I did have some sixth graders that tried a Django tutorial, and I think they got it to the point where it could hello world and, and get set up and everything, which I think it's important to have the context for this. These are sixth graders that got their first laptop computers earlier that year. So they'd only had about six months of using it, their own laptop with a file system on it. And before this, it was all iPads and Chromebooks and everything. So for them to go and work through the tutorial and get it to come up with Hello World on a Django server running on their laptop was a really cool thing yeah, to see. That's and amazing. So I, when I was at PyCon, I went and got them some Django Girl stickers <laughs> and brought them back to them and made sure they knew that it was a really big deal. Yeah, that's so cool. That being said, sometimes I feel like teaching people who are brand new and are even kids is easier than teaching people who have like really box themselves into a mindset and this is something that I've noticed especially with some adult learners is that if they had really regimented careers beforehand it's really hard to break them out of that and like people who were following a script their whole careers trying to get them to instead be like there's no script there's Mm. no rules to follow you don't need to fit inside this perfect box you just try things and if it breaks that's perfectly fine bugs are normal errors are normal like break yourself out of this mindset that's one of the hardest pieces of teaching an adult and so one of my favorite pieces of teaching a kid too seems to be like a, a a thing I say constantly. I just want you to try. I say it all the time to the sixth and seventh graders because sometimes they just it is. It's I can imagine with adults we try to get a couple people to to do Python in the classroom. Some are more willing to try things than others, but yeah, that's something we constantly say. I I don't care if you fail. I will give you a hundred on your report card. I really don't care. I just want you to try. It's the grade that's holding you back. Fine. You got a hundred. What do you want? A hundred in the class. I don't care. So yeah. And you can't really that's do that awesome. to adults because it's not like they're in there to, to get a grade. They're in there to improve themselves. So trying is scary when you're trying to learn new things or improve yourself. It's, I read that one of your blog posts about the imposter syndrome and it's, it was something that I've been grappling with the whole time getting better at it but at least I know my basics solidly (laughs) (laughs) no it's so tough and grades are something that was like a huge soapbox for me some people would try to artificially put grades on things and I was like so against that for adult learners they've got enough external pressure on them already they don't need that and I think for me at least when I was in college I think it was something that really prevented me from learning and if I had not had a grade I probably would have gone further with computer science because I'm so worried about that B on my transcript and looking back it didn't matter at all but at that point it was a really big deal. Yeah it'd be really cool if we can switch it instead of like pass fail to you tried or you didn't. Yeah exactly <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah and I always tell them if you try and you put the like the work into trying to figure it out the grades will follow right like the grades should be a reflection of the what you've learned and the work that you've put into it not this thing onto themselves and I think a lot of students lose that perspective because they have a lot of external pressure right they've got pressure from their parents they've got pressure from their peers they're trying to strive for this goal and if we help them understand that the goal is really not getting the report card grade it's about the knowledge or the useful skill that you can use to make your life better then i think it'll free them from a lot of those kind of prisons that they put themselves in when they start applying grades to it yeah one last question if you could give one 
one single piece of advice for anyone looking to go into, say, a full-stack developer, software developer, anything, maybe as a, a student that might be going into that career or thinking about that career, what would that one piece of advice do? What would you say? Oh, wow. This is so, <laughs> so tough. I've done like three pieces of advice before. I've done 10. I've done 25. One is really tough. I think when you're just starting out, one of the things that I see most often is this fear of breaking things. And we've been talking about this a little bit, but following tutorial after tutorial, because you're too maybe afraid to break outside of that and just try to build something and seeing what happens and finding those errors and fixing them and like having this growth mindset about it of I can learn this or I can expand my knowledge. And I think getting that especially early on is so important and such a huge piece of this and something that I wish that I had fostered myself earlier. My question was, do you have any questions for us? Is there anything about (laughs) teaching in middle school or our experience that you'd like to learn more about that we can share with you? Honestly, everything. Like, you all have my someday dream job. So, what do you all teach as your curriculum? I heard a little bit of turtle, which is so much fun, but is that the the main basis of what you teach? No. So, in sixth grade, I start them off with basic Python 3. I found that doing turtle first, I lose them forever. Okay. Because they love it. I, I teach them all the basics, and I go vocabulary but I don't teach like vocabulary quizzes I just say the vocabulary over and over again because I felt when I learned the vocabulary and somebody was telling me to code or something or I needed to ask questions I needed to have the vocabulary so a lot of the first four weeks five weeks is me list variable object method let's copy and do that and then I do python and I show them look you did the list you did an object method and then we did two more weeks with the microbit hardware because a lot of kids like that instantaneous. And again, I show them that it's the same thing as a Python 3. And then we do a demonstration of learning project, which is about two weeks. And seventh grade, we review. It's a, well, it's a spiral, right? Yeah. So we start with a review and then we spiral down into some of those topics. So whereas, and this is where Kelly and I each teach uh, one class of seventh grade. So we split the grade level and we are going deeper into each of those concepts. So in sixth grade, they might have learned about lists and how to add and remove things, but we might get into list sorting or we might get into randomization and shuffling. And we try to do this through projects. So like one of the projects that they do is making their own class schedule, right? So they have, they use the order of the list to make their class schedule and have all their class periods. And and then I, my favorite thing to do is to have them like try to print out their schedule with print statements and have them figure out the formatting and everything and let them work with that for a little bit. And then I'm like, okay, and now I want you to just import this library called Tabulate and give it your list and just have it like print the whole thing beautifully for you so that you can see the value of these things. So we start to introduce new concepts like external libraries and more advanced methods and things like that. Oh, and then ahead. we also do a little sort of a version control. We do a lot of say we have a project rock, paper, scissors, something that's out there and Googleable. we always want them to write and not look at the information online because we tell them, listen, if it's all if, else, print, input statements, that's where your learning is, we're going to take. And so that's what Sean was doing with also with the schedules. We iterate over it to show them how it can be improved. Okay, go. That's awesome. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then in eighth grade, we are really trying to help them 
continue to build those skills of researching and learning and figuring things out, troubleshooting, handling error messages, knowing what to do when this happens. And we revisit a lot of those concepts. So this year, one of the scariest things for me to teach, but ended up being really great was we took a card game project that they had learned in seventh grade and done all with lists of tuples. And we had them do that as a class-based object-oriented project. And so we talked through like how to make a card class and a deck class and how these things would inherit properties and and everything. And they got so excited about it because some of the kids were like, this makes so much sense. But we also had that conversation that said, okay, well, for those of you who this is not better, like why? What do you like better about the old way of doing it? And we had this really great conversation about these things not being better or worse, that there's just two different approaches to solving the problem. And depending on how you think through it or how you solve it is really what is going to inform how you approach the problem and how you choose to solve it. And the kids like seeing, because I always joke around, I'm like, okay, I'm going to show you Miss Paredes' way of solving this project, <laughs> and then I'm going to show you what Mr. Tyver does. So it's really nice for them to see. They know that I've only been coding for almost, not even three years, but almost three years, and so it's nice for them to see I'm still, I can still walk through the basics and they can read my code, but they all agree. Two lines of code is so much better than writing your 10 lines. Of code. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. But you can read mine. <laughs> no, no that's awesome. But I think like the underlying skill that we do constantly, we teach a lot of learning how to learn skills. And one of the major skills that we teach is just the ability to read And it sounds so funny, but the kids reading for understanding, reading for learning, reading for for content, reading for skimming, the different parts of reading. And it's been a fun learning process because I've told them that my brain has completely switched since I, I started learning code. And like, I learned how to read for understanding really well. And so that's something that we really take into heart when we're teaching. So it's the, probably the most frustrating part for them because we make them read and read out loud and, and read again. No, that's so. awesome. But there's so many skills that go into programming and then there are so many that it applies to afterwards. And I think that's so awesome and why I think that there should be more classes like this because so many of these skills are so widely applicable. Even if they don't become coders, they just apply to everything else. So just yep. so cool. Yep. We've often told them that the reason why we do this is because it gives them one more tool or one more set of tools that they can use so that they don't have to use it for everything, but it's available to them. It's an option now that maybe they didn't have before. So cool. All future full stack developers coming your way. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody in the future will be a full stack developer. So, Allie, if people want to follow what you're doing and learn more, I, I, mean, I pulled together a few things. They can listen to the Ladybug podcast, which is awesome. The 13-year-old inside of me is still giggling about data shards. <laughs> but it's a really great conversation about a whole variety of topics within coding, computer science, engineering, all sorts of things. And I, I always learn a lot from you and your co-hosts about so many different topics and things I hadn't thought of before. So I definitely highly recommend that. You've also got a pretty um, lengthy and substantial blog on your own blog, as well as on the Dev Dev2 site. And then you also have this new job with Amplify at AWS, working on making full stack more accessible or more more fun, I guess, than yeah. it has been in the past. <laughs> so <laughs> tell us a little bit more about what people can check out that you're working on now. 
Yeah, for sure. The hub of everything is Aspital, which is my Twitter account, and I'm Aspital on most like platforms, so it's easiest to find there. But my blog is welearncode.com, and so a lot of writing goes on there. And Ladybug is so much fun. I love doing the podcast because I learn so much from my co-hosts every time that I record it, and so we're always talking about different topics within tech and our different specializations. We're actually recording a Python episode later this week, so it's pretty exciting. But yeah, and then Amplify, I'm brand new to this team. I'm like a month and a half into my new job, but AWS Amplify is this platform for development that allows you to pretty much generate a backend in a couple lines of code, mostly just typing things into the CLI and it generates it all for you. And then uh, you don't even really need to deploy it. It's already built out on AWS for you. So it makes the whole process really smooth. And so I'm really excited for the future of that and see how it evolves because it's a really new product in and of itself. But I think the, the forefront of making code easier is really cool. And we're on this like cutting edge of that. That's really cool. That's the real power of the era that we're in right now is that things can scale so quickly. You can build something, scale it, really make it happen fast. But having that on-ramp, that ability to quickly understand it and get something going, is it, all the effort that you make into making it easier for people to do that is really going a long way. Because even just a few years ago, to know how to deploy something to Heroku or AWS required a fair amount of knowledge and understanding of how it all fits together. And so having that, that on-ramp to be able to automate some of that for you and make it easier is a really cool thing. Yeah. Yeah. When I was starting off, it was Ruby on Rails and Django that were making web development much easier. And now we have Amplify, which just allows you to type a couple things into the command line and it does it all for you. So it's really cool to see how these things have progressed, even in my like eight-year career. That's pretty cool. So I think we'll wrap it up here. We've talked a lot about a variety of topics. If you'd like to talk more, you can always follow us on Twitter at teachingpython. You can contact us through our website, teachingpython.fm. Kelly is at Kelly Pered on Twitter. I'm at SM Tiber on Twitter, and I'm at AK Grown on the PlayStation Network. <laughs> Not that you're on there. <laughs> I don't know if you know about this joke, but he adds a new social media platform at the end, and I, I never know what we're going to get. So. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, a big thank you to all of our sponsors on Patreon. It really helps keep things going and helps um, make this happen every week. So thank you for that. We are looking to schedule our episodes for Tuesdays, so you can keep an eye out for those. We've also started introducing blog week. So a week where we don't record and we focus on getting new content to our blog. So look for new posts coming more frequently there too. All right. And a big thank you, Allie, to joining us this week. We really appreciate having you on the podcast with us. It's been a fascinating conversation and we would love to have you back pretty much anytime you want. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been genuinely so, so fun. Great. Oh, good, good. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. This is Kelly, signing off. Mm-hmm.